Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. I'm here today with Iolu Aboyeji, co-founder and there and an investor in the tech sector. Welcome, Iolu. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> If I'm going to describe you, you are an incurable optimist, let me say that, about Africa. So I guess what I should ask is, what makes you optimistic? What can you see that you think others who are more pessimistic than you cannot at the moment? I think one one thing that I definitely see is, you know, every opportunity that has emerged in the world today is born from challenges, right? So when I see challenges, I ultimately see opportunities. So I think opportunities are born out of challenges. I can't think of a single opportunity that didn't come from a challenge. And I think that what a lot of people miss is that at the end of the day, innovation is born out of the need to solve problems, right? And new problems. More importantly, innovation precedes development. So I think a lot of the other people come at it from the point of view of, oh, we need to have all these things right before we have a society. And I say, no, that's not the way history has shown us it works. The way we know how it works is that there are challenges, people innovate past the challenges, and then a new society is born. So I think it's really just a lack of understanding of history, quite frankly that often creates these uh, challenges that people have when it comes to these things. But on on the other side, don't you think that the things that people worry about, like the issue of governance, poverty, uh, inadequate public goods like infrastructure, electricity, and things like that, don't you think that those are actual constraints to innovation taking off in Africa? I think those are opportunities for innovation themselves. Not constraints to innovation taking off. There is a need for people to innovate in those areas. And there are ways to innovate in all these areas, including in the area of governance, in the area of infrastructure challenges and all that. And what it just requires is bold innovators who are able to build market models around the solutions to these challenges, which is what we focus on at Future Africa every day. So, I mean, I feel like African intellectuals use these issues as an excuse, <laughs> if you ask me. It's a convenient excuse. They oh, the place doesn't have infrastructure, so I can't come and solve any problems. Let them fix their issues. And it's like, who? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? People innovate here all the time without this infrastructure and without this development people are talking about. So there must be a way they are doing it. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Okay, so businesses, entrepreneurship is about solving practical problems, right? If I'm going to present a problem to you right now, say electricity, how would you innovate in that space, given the freedom and the resources to do that? Fantastic. Well, right now, what we know for a fact is that the electricity problem is a dimensioned problem in the sense that demand must match supply. And I feel like a lot of what development experts and stuff like that tend to speak of is really as a result of a lack of understanding of that 
understanding that demand must match supply in putting together energy initiatives. So, for example, certain kinds of places need certain kinds of power, right? A grid may not necessarily be the a national grid may not necessarily be the best way to solve those problems. Perhaps what you need to do is build captive power projects and start to think about energy management, right? And there are a number of companies. I think the way to think about these things is that you need to put together a framework that enables innovators flourish in solving these problems. And it takes an innovator to put together those frameworks. And I think one of the biggest challenges we've had across government is there are barely any innovators in government. I mean, you, you think about the likes of Louis Brandeis in the US, think about the likes of Alexander Hamilton. These were innovators in government, right? But we don't have any. <laughs> Closest I've seen for all his faults is Fashola. You get what I'm trying to say? But even yeah. then, the government is not thinking innovatively about solving the problem. Because if the government was, they would just put together frameworks that make it possible. So back to the matter, more practically, right? How can we make it easier to do decentralized power projects, like captive power projects, leveraging all the mixes and all the possible ways energy can be generated? How can we create electronics that reduce energy consumption? Because that's also part of the problem. Do you understand? There's no need for us to have all these expensive U.S. designed electronics when there are cheaper, more energy efficient options that exist, which reduces our demand for electricity, right? You understand what I'm saying? So there's quite a bit of work. How do we do a better job of batteries? Most of the implements that you need to create batteries, we can actually source locally. You know, is there a way that we can become the battery capital of the world? And these are real questions that we now need to start asking. How do we store power? How do we do, you know? So if we don't do these things, right, it's not going to happen just like that. Do you get what I'm trying to say? We have yeah. to think through the solution and adapt the solution to the specific problems that exist. I know we have lithium in Nigeria. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to, from that lithium, create battery plants and create jobs for people. There's no reason. Beyond just the, we have iron ore in Nigeria. We have, you know, so, I mean, there's just a lot for us to think about and what we need to do in that respect. Suppose these innovations are possible, as you say. There's also the question of government. The business yeah. environment itself, onerous licensing procedures, basically government wanting to collect rent, their favored firms, and other things that have to yeah. do with how we do governance here that are mm -hmm. actually barriers to getting things done. So now, going back to the original point, I'm mm -hmm. pessimist, in quotes, right to worry about issue of governance for innovation? I think that they are right to worry. Where I have a challenge is, is all you're going to do worry. <laughs> do you understand what I'm trying to say? Because you are right to worry. There is a reason to worry. But if that's where it stops, then I have a problem with that. The reality of the governance challenges that we face from a data-based perspective is that our culture of complaining rather than getting right to specific solutions and opportunities, has, for lack of a better word, demobilized the Nigerian public into believing that there are practical solutions to these problems. And what we learn every time we build a public coalition in support of an idea or the other is that it doesn't actually take much to pressure government to do the right thing. It really doesn't. <laughs> What is required, however, is a sense of um, 
I think the way Madam Obi, who I consider one of my mentors, puts it is the best. You have to create demand for good governance. And right now, I think we have sufficiently convinced ourselves that it's impossible to create demand for good governance. And so we are now suffering the consequences. Um, you think there's no demand for good governance? No, I don't think Nigerians believe it is possible for them to get good governance. <laughs> and as a result, they will never get it. You think so? Can you elaborate? Well, I believe that the average Nigerian, even the private sector people, they optimize for the failure of government by extracting from it. I don't know if I'm being clear. <laughs> I mean, put the average private sector person in front of Buhari. Okay. And we know that person to do one thing, right? And Buhari says, look, I'll give you all my powers. Go and solve this problem and bring back solutions. That person will optimize for like nine out of ten times in my experience. That person optimizes for, ah, let me do quick and make as much money as I can. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Now, isn't that really a question of incentives? Businesses no. will always want to work for their own gain, short term or long term. I think that, that's dependent on the incentive of the individual or the company. And I think that's where government comes in, which is like the unbiased third party in this coordination problem that we call a society, to ensure that the appropriate incentives are there for each party to play their role. No, I mean, th that's one way of thinking about it, to be honest, Toby. But I think the more practical way, if you ask me to think about it, is that if you look at the way nations come together, from Germany to the US to England, it has taken a cadre of mission-minded entrepreneurs to come and support governments in building the right kind of infrastructure. Now, whenever you put a Nigerian in a privileged position where they can even provide ideas or effect good governance, their immediate reaction in most cases is to default to what I call racketeering and rentism because they don't have any confidence in the ability of the government to implement or supply good governance. Do you get my point? So you think about the way even our pressure groups are organized. They are just organized to extract from governments, not to even provide any kind of framework for innovation in governments. Doesn't that answer your question, though, in the sense that if a lot of the demand for good governance is incentivized the way you describe, isn't that because poor governance is what is being supplied? And isn't that the most immediate problem that needs to be solved? No, I don't think so. I think that, that's one conclusion you can come to based on what I'm talking about. But another conclusion you can also come to is that faith will precede works, <laughs> to speak parabolically. Basically, if people believe that it is possible for them to build a better society, right? All yeah. their efforts will be geared towards making that happen. Do you understand? But right now, people don't believe they can build a better society. So they are just extracting, just like colonial masters did, just like government officials are doing. The whole society is built around this idea that let me just focus on getting what I need out of this relationship with my country rather than building it. And until that attitude changes, until people feel like, for example, I mean, the idea that business is primarily for the purpose of making money is an idea that is actually, I've only heard about it in Nigeria. 
Are Everywhere else, people talk about business as a vehicle for purpose. People talk about business as a way to get consumers what they need. It's only in Nigeria it's about making people rich. <laughs> it's a byproduct. I mean, the riches are a byproduct of providing value and providing service. But in Nigeria, business is primarily just about making people rich. And so as a result, that's the outcome we optimize for. But even in societies where you see that some of these things you see in Nigeria are lacking, I think businesses are still optimized for the benefit of the shareholders because businesses need capital to do what they do. So if you are a business and you're serving a particular purpose, whatever that is, whatever your value proposition is, you're fulfilling customers' needs. And I am doing that, and the third guy is doing that, and we have thousands and millions of businesses doing that. Doesn't that aggregate into a social good? Isn't that what a free and open economy is about? Well, one thing I like to say is like, look, markets are created. Markets are not free, right? <laughs> they are created. And they are created with intention. Do you understand? In the US, I mean, one of the lessons I've learned in doing business with large tech companies, US foreign tech companies in Nigeria, I've never seen a society where, so when I engage with the average US tech company, they want to do something in Nigeria. Do you know the first request they have? How can we be regulated in your country? I mean, that's an odd request, right, from the point of view of a Nigerian businessman. But because of the kind of long-term view they're taking to things, right, one of their most important public engagements is creating a framework within which they exist. That's not how the Nigerian businessman thinks. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And I think that's why we have the problems we keep. We have the problems we do because we exist in a society where the market is the purpose. Like the, the market is not created to do anything. It's just there. Do you hear my point? There's no purpose around the market. It's like it's created for its own sake. But markets are created in order to accomplish a specific social function, which is improving livelihoods, right? If a market is not doing that, it has failed. It doesn't matter how much money people are making from the markets. <laughs> and so until the business people in this country get together, have a conversation with themselves and say, look, we cannot be living like this. Like we need to be able to come together and put in place a government systems that improve livelihoods. You understand what I'm saying? And our businesses have to be geared towards that. We're not making any progress. But first of all, people that think that way have to emerge. That's how it happened in the U.S., it's not like the U.S. first started having businessmen when they had Rockefeller and so on and so forth. They've had businessmen before that. But the businessmen that emerged in that era, who we now celebrate as the men who built America, they were businessmen who emerged from the point of view that, look, business has markets have a social function. And until that social function is established, it doesn't matter. Do you understand what I'm saying? What they do. Their businesses are always going to incur a higher cost. Let's talk about another practical issue. You were involved with Mrs. Obi Ezekwesili's uh, presidential campaign. Am I right? Yes. Yes, I was. I was. I was deputy now, general of the campaign. What happened? I mean, that is someone that has a lot of credibility, is yeah. knowledgeable. Yeah. Why did the campaign fail to galvanize the requisite support for the needed 
change and some of these things that you talk about? I think, first of all, I think I don't think that the campaign did not galvanize the support. I actually think the campaign actually did galvanize some supports. I think the problem was twofold, right? And I'm, I'm speaking very honestly. First of okay. all, we didn't necessarily go into the campaign prepared, right? It was a very ad hoc campaign. It wasn't like something we decided, oh, we're going to do this and then decided to go into this. It was very inspired by the person of Madame Obi. So we didn't go in prepared. And it wasn't because we didn't want to go in prepared. It was because, quite obviously, it was a last resort attempt. <laughs> it was one of those things where it was very much like, if not us, who? Do you get what I'm trying to say? And all the errors in the campaign were primarily as a result of that. I have no doubt in my mind that if we had a two-year lead time, you understand what I'm trying to say, we would definitely have one election. I might be delusional in saying so, but it is a fact. Because I know what the numbers were internally. And I know how hard, which is, you know, back to the other issue of sabotage, how hard people worked to sabotage us because of the kind of ground we were gaining. I don't have much money. The amount of money that was released to stop the campaign was more than what we spent on it. Two times, in fact. Who was releasing money to stop the campaign? <laughs> I don't want to cast aspersions, but I will tell you for a fact that politicians in the ruling party did release some money to stop the campaign. As is fair in politics, right? They had to... It's not like there's a rule against cutting members of the opposition. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I don't think they did anything particularly wrong. The people that we worked with just didn't have integrity, unfortunately. That was what it was. And that's fair. Because all is fair in love and politics, right? But the reality is that the campaign was gaining a lot of ground. And it still shocks me to today how much money exchanged hands in order to bring down the campaign versus how much money was actually invested into the campaign <laughs> because of our resources. So I think that basically those twin issues worked against us. But the campaign was revolutionary in the sense that it was the first time you had a politician, a female politician, gain significant ground without coming from a major party. I don't think we've ever had that in Nigeria. And I think that's something the women should take inspiration from. Women can actually change politics in Nigeria. They're actually, let me rephrase my statement. Women are the only ones who can change the way politics works in Nigeria, period. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Second thing is the fact that the kind of groundswell of support we receive from common people, this was not a campaign that was well-resourced, right? It was average people donating. And for the amount of money that we're able to donate from average people, I was very shocked at the level of support we received. And honestly, I think we would have done a lot better if we were able to ride it out to ballot box, even without the resources. And I think third, this was a very active case that exposed certain things about the way our political system is designed, particularly with respect to mushroom parties. Do you get what I'm saying? The idea that there's this party cloning process, <laughs> so to speak, that in very many cases, because of the lack of engagement of real citizens, you have citizens that are almost all the citizens in our political space are economically incentivized and without principle, unfortunately. So this is why politics is a dirty game, because all you have there are dirty clothes. Do you get what I'm saying? So you can't have only dirty clothes in politics and then complain politics is a dirty game. Now, have you guys given up? Is much of the political no, machinery no. now dead? No, it's not. I mean, we had the fixed politics conference earlier this year. We have regular meetings. I think the big thing for us now is we have time to re-architect. We've changed the frame. 
people forget that the political campaign started in October. We launched in October and we ended our campaign. It's the shortest political campaign in Nigeria history, <laughs> right? October, November, December, January, February, five months. And we've changed it from a five-month campaign to a 50-year campaign to say we're going to be around for as long as, you know, we do it. And then we've also realized that, look, at least personally, I have realized, I don't want to speak on behalf of the campaign, but the reality is that we realized, look, at the end of the day, it's not really about just political parties. We've tried that avenue, it doesn't work. It's about political personalities, political ideology, and people. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's about an entire political class that has to change. It's mostly male-dominated by people who've never worked a day in their lives, by people who don't understand business. And these are things that have to change. And it's going to be about people going in and changing it. So come 2023, you're saying she's going to run again? No, I'm not saying that. I don't think it's about one person running. <laughs> We're trying to change the system. So I think it's really about building an organization, a distributed organization that enables innovators in public policy to assume political authority. So you won't field any candidates in upcoming elections? Well, parties field candidates, and we're not a political party. <laughs> right? Exactly. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make. That What do you want to do? I mean, in what areas concretely now are you working do you want well, to change legislation so, i mean i don't want to preempt the campaign so i can speak for myself because everybody's coming into this as an individual and a citizen do you get what okay. i'm trying to say but a lot of what i'm trying to do first thing first is work collaboratively with the government <laughs> first of all right they're in power now whether you like it or not work collaboratively i, I provide as much advice as i can to governments at every level understanding that i have to engage because if I don't engage, somebody will fill the void. You understand what I'm trying to say? But I work with a mind that the public interest must be protected and that markets exist to serve a social function. They are not just there for the purpose of making people money. They are there to solve problems. <laughs> markets are created to solve problems. So I go into my conversations with government with that and I say what I have to say. The second thing, though, is how can we build a collective of people who share that mindset across every level of society? And that's where I mostly focus in the business sector, bringing my colleagues who share similar ideas together and supporting each other in making sure that the things that we need done are done. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think most importantly, right, it's going to really boil down to as we get closer to election time, the candidates we back. And there are going to be candidates who are aligned with this way of thinking. <laughs> and there are candidates who are not aligned with this way of thinking. And we will have to, as citizens, aggregate support for those who are aligned with our values. I hope for the best with that project. I'll be watching. Yeah, well, I hope you're not just watching, but you're also participating, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Jumia. There was the IPO, I think, about a year ago, and that generated its own controversy, which I'm not going to get into because whether that company is African or not, I don't find it particularly interesting, that mm. subject. Mm -hmm. But the company has somewhat struggled. It's hard to pull away from certain markets. I saw the Q1 results. They were 
very good losses are down users are yeah. up but yeah. what has gone wrong with jumia i mean the share price is now at three dollars so i know you are not into financial capitalism but i yeah. can give us your view I think one thing people always forget when they talk about Jumia is that the reason why Jumia was set up, right, or the problem that Jumia addresses. And I'll be the first to say Jumia has not always even itself been focused on that problem. But three factors that make Jumia a necessity. Number one, retail space in Nigeria. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Let's just be clear. The amount of retail space we have to the number of people that we have compared to other countries has an astronomically large gap. The second thing to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, we are mostly a country of traders. We're mostly a country of shopkeepers. And many of those shopkeepers simply do not have wide access to markets. That's one of their primary challenges, right? No matter how good their products are, no matter how well-priced they are. And why don't they have access to markets? Because people must come to the open markets, which are very repressive, political, and inefficient in order to get service, right? And number three, at the end of the day, if we want businesses to grow, if we want to understand the challenges businesses have, we have no better indicator than data. And the fact of the matter is, for the last 60 years, we've been primarily running blind with respect to our demand and supply because most of transactions are happening with cash. So when you think about those factors and you think about the kind of work Jumia does or should be doing, you can understand that the fundamentals are clear. Whether it was founded by Germans or Kotonu people or Ikoroju people, it doesn't matter. You get my point. The mission is clear. I personally think the company is massively undervalued, right? Basically, the company is being valued at two times its cash flow, which is ridiculous. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Like cash in the bank is being valued at two times its free cash flow. The company has no debts, so it has no leverage, which is unheard of for an e-commerce company. And if it has a flaw, it's that it has overheads in Paris that it doesn't need. There's no value the management team in Paris is adding, per se, in my opinion, that cannot be gotten in Nigeria for way cheaper. So when you look at that kind of business, you reduce the GNA and you double down on social mission. You should be able to get something profitable out of it, which is why I'm very long to business. Okay. Going back to the early days of e-commerce with companies like Jumia, and Conga. One thing I picked up is that something wasn't quite right with the business model to start with. And yeah. I, I suspect... Yeah, I said initially something wasn't right with the business model. Yes, yes. Because when you look at a company like Amazon, for example, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, for a company mm-hmm. like Amazon, Primarily, they do business by having a faster resource velocity, holding cash so that they can process orders really quickly. But you have companies like Jumia with no payment platform, for example, saying that people should do cash on delivery. So you are basically processing orders with your own money. You know, you're not taking cash from people. 
So is it a question of timing that companies like Flutter, Wave, stack were not around and that affected the take of, of e-commerce? Um, I think payments could have played a role, but I think that it might be overplaying its role in this thing. Let me put it that way, right? <laughs> we might be overplaying its role in this thing, primarily because I think the thing they really got wrong, right? was just this whole idea that they could, quote-unquote, buy the markets. From day one, they should have adapted to a marketplace model, understanding that the problem that they are really trying to solve is this nation of traders without a space to trade. If they had focused on that, I think they would have gone much further, even with the payment issues. And ultimately, they should have obviously innovated payments a lot earlier than they ended up doing either by partnering or by building their own infrastructure as they ended up doing, right? And it's important to understand that even when there was no pay stack and uh, flood, there was always interswitch. <laughs> so the extent to which one can say that's the problem, I don't believe, uh, I think that would be giving ourselves way too much credit in my opinion. Do you understand what I'm saying? That would be giving ourselves credit. There was room to innovate. I don't deny there were challenges with the model, as there are with any business, but they had a lot of room to innovate. And they didn't always, because they were not working with the local business, like they were trying to be Amazon too badly, as opposed to solve the problems Nigeria has. You understand what I'm saying? That's, that created issues for them. What I'm noticing from, I also read their, their reports, and the business that they should have run from the beginning is the one they are trying to run now. So you take, example, three-party logistics. They spent so much of the money they raised, them and conquer, buying buses, bikes, all this stuff, right? Instead of empowering third-party logistics providers to provide that for them. Now, they barely own any fixed assets in the logistics space, and they are making money. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that goes to show you what they should have done from the get-go. Same thing applies when you think about the impact that they've had in the payment space, right? Payments-wise, they had a captive audience. They knew how to build the technology. They just couldn't be bothered. They should have built that a long time ago. Even in their marketplace, right? They just moved to a marketplace model less than two and a half years ago. And it's now the weight that their business is resting on. You understand what I'm saying? They should have built that model a long time ago, providing warehouses, providing credit, providing services. This is what Alibaba understood, which they didn't. That in an ecosystem of products, not necessarily about doing everything yourself. Let's talk about talent a bit. Um, people like you say all the time, and I'm inclined to believe that we have human capital, but yes. companies like Jumia and a whole lot of companies in that space and in other sectors, to be fair, still have to go outside the shores of the country to hire engineers, managers, and the like. Doesn't that negate our belief, the popular belief in Nigeria's potential and human capital and all these things that people go on about? Well, I mean, so I think I think it's important to dimension. Human capital is a very broad way to think about it, right? Very, very broad. It's much smarter for you to dimension what you mean by human capital. So there are three levels, in my opinion, right? The first level of human capital is literate entry-level talent that has a capacity to learn and grow. Then you have management talent. Then you have entrepreneurial talent, right? And I think we're on different levels in each of these respects. 
In terms of converting what I would call brilliance into human capital or talent, I think the ecosystem has done a fantastic job. I even believe, if you ask me, that I don't think there's anybody who can do a better job than Nigeria when it comes to taking raw talents. And it's because of the talent themselves. I'm not saying there's anything special we have. But the amount of initiative the average Nigerian young person can take when appropriately motivated and with interest is ridiculous. I'll tell you a story. I have a young lady on my team. I always use her as an example. I'm embarrassing her. She runs a fund for me. The full thing. I'm not talking about um, a full fund. She files paperwork with the SEC, ERAs, everything. She knows the business. She's not even finished from university. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So I think there's a lot of initiative that our talent has. Now, they need other things. It's not enough for them to just have raw talent. They need management skills. They need decision-making skills. They need soft skills. Those are the areas where we are often bested by what I call the MBA boys. You understand? But street smarts of solving problems, the average Nigerian student solves problems every day, just like to survive. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? So they are far better suited for a lot of these problems and roles. The only problem is they need to be provided with engineering management talent. They oftentimes don't come with the experience. And because it requires experience, to be quite honest, how to manage other people, how to report to stakeholders. Even I myself, because I've never been in a corporate environment, I struggle with those things myself. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I can't yeah. speak MBA. Do you get my points? I haven't always learned how to present my decisions with data. Those are things I'm even learning myself. So when we say these things, I think that it's important to balance out what we are talking about. And that with time, time is the only way to get those capabilities to grow. Time and opportunity. At the end of the day, all talent is measured on the basis of results. <laughs> you get my point. Sometimes I look at some of these people that are hired by the Jumias and so on and so forth. I'm not saying they are bad people, but from a results perspective, I think it's helpful. Let's even ask ourselves the real question. Have they really performed? Right? Have they really performed? I think they've been very expensive. <laughs> if it's by how much they're being paid, then maybe you can say they've performed. But many of them have not really built anything of lasting value. Do you understand my points? But if those talents can be gotten locally and yeah, for, less, for less the price that you are saying that those other guys from those more advanced markets are commanding, if those talents can be gotten locally for a fraction of the fees that these companies are paying, don't you think the rational thing to do would be to do that? Why would anybody want to bring management from France if you can get good management in yeah, Nigeria for a fraction of the fee? There are all these political interests involved. Where is the majority of Jumia's money from, right, outside of Africa? There's all this political interest involved, to be honest. It's not as straightforward as we like to think it is. Because I've met many of these people. I mean, they are smart people and they're good people, but they're not that impressive that, you know. You know, sometimes we even look at these things and, you know, sometimes they also have to be very wise. A number of these things are empowerment schemes for their own people now, <laughs> which is not against the rules. Do you get my point? Well, you can't come and tell me some young kid straight out of school himself is smarter than me because he managed to take some classes about how to do PowerPoints. Come on, cut me off that bullshit. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's, it's a function of opportunity at the end of the day. 
we don't have the money. They have the money. They decide who manages their capital. That's okay. It's the rules of the game. So why aren't our local businessmen who have money, you know, why are they not involved? What's stopping them, so to speak? Again, I think it boils down to what we talked about earlier, which is people don't understand that markets have a social function, right? Because if they knew markets had a social function, they themselves would be in a rush to innovate. Do you understand? Which would mean that they would chase talent that can help them innovate. Well, because many of them don't even really see, I mean, for them, they're more concerned about making money. And a lot of the money that they can make is short-term money and it's working. So why complicate things, Abhi? Interesting. Especially when yeah. protected governments, right? Why, why innovate when government will always protect your business? Because you have financial interests in your success. A few months ago, you announced the Talent City. Yeah. Uh, I think you're involved with the Charter City Initiative, yeah. the Institute. Yeah. So is that your own way? I mean, future Africa, of course. Is that your own way of trying to take a stab at the talent problem? Well, I'm still very deeply interested in the talent problem. I mean, just first thing, I mean, I'm backing companies that are solving it in many different ways. I'm very deeply invested in the success of Andela's. I may not be playing in day to day, but whenever I'm called upon, I provide advice to Andela about what they're trying to do. So I'm very vested in it. But I think what we're trying to do with Talent City is much deeper than just about solving the talent problem. I think it's about modeling how society should work. That's really what we're trying to get at, right? How can you model the way society needs to work if it is innovation and problem solving focused? There are, as you pointed out rightly, challenges with governments in all the places where we are. I mean, Yaba was supposed to be the epicenter of the Nigerian tech ecosystem, right? And it still had that potential. It could always be. But because we didn't have the right-minded type of governments, this area never really took off in the way it should have, beyond just increasing house rents and increasing you know, a lot of development has come to Yaba as a result of tech being located here. But the people of Yaba have not even seen the benefits because their political leaders have not been able to make the right decision or consulted appropriately about how to deepen the impact that has already been created here. Because I think it's also worth repeating that Yaba was basically created also by governments taking the right decision. Pashola made the decision to enable zero rating of right of way in Yaba. That's why Yaba is what Yaba became. It wasn't because somebody went and built an edifice. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So it, it became the cheapest place for you to have an internet-enabled business in Yaba, and people came on their own, which is a lesson for all our policymakers. Now, what we're trying to do with Talent City is that we're trying to put together the elements of what a mini-innovation society would look like or a mini-startup society would look like. And there's a big focus on technology-enabled jobs, but I think there's even a bigger focus on the quality of life, governance mechanisms that must exist for a place like this to thrive. So we're very close to launch, actually. We're going to start taking commitments from people very, very soon. What we're basically trying to do on this two-square-kilometer space is leveraging the current opportunities with Nigeria's SEZ laws to build an environment 
that is very conducive for people who work in the technology or digital space in general, right? Innovation space in general. How can we provide them with the right guidance, the right environment, the right ambience for them to be able to thrive? There's some basic infrastructure issues that must be resolved. Power and internet being two of the top ones. We have a 23 megawatt power plant. We have a one gigabyte pipe running through the facility, right? And we're going to put a carpet of very fast internet in the facility. There's housing that's appropriate. There's retail that's appropriate. The plan is also to put in a data center in the area, right? And to have a school of technology in the area as well. So these are things that we are trying to do, so to speak, and scale the effort over time to other parts of the country. What location have you chosen for this pilot? I cannot, I cannot say on your podcast. I'm sorry. All right. So you're saying you're ready to move. You have the land. You have everything. I mean, yeah. if you can't tell us the I mean, location, we, you can tell us that at least. It's a very tony situation, to be honest, with public-private partnerships. They take time. So we have the plans and we are ready to move, but we need to wrap up the conversation with the government. Then we will announce. Okay. Okay. I wish you all the best with that. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully so, you can be my support because I'm planning to move too. We can do the podcast <laughs> in person. All right. Finally, if you have an idea that you want everybody in Nigeria, all over the world to be super pumped about, to be excited about, to carry in their heads, to always champion, what would it be? Hmm. I think it's innovation precedes development. There's no Calvary anywhere. We are going to keep doing the same thing for the next hundred years. <laughs> and we'll pass it on to our children if we believe that all conditions must be right before we can build a nation. We have to consider these challenges a privilege. And the privilege is really that we have an opportunity to solve these challenges. And by solving these challenges, we can enable society to become better. I think innovation precedes development and the idea that markets have purpose. They're created <laughs> to make societies better. That's how we resolve the communist capitalist problem, right? By having that understanding. And markets are not markets for their own sake. They have a social purpose. Those are the two ideas I want everybody to understand. Thank you so much, Miguel. Thank you very much. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you. Until next time.